Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. One of first things readers, favorite writers, uh, Mary Eberstadt joins us today. She holds the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C. Her many writings include the books, How the West Really Lost God, A New Theory of Secularization, and Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution. We have now a follow-up to the latter book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, Revisited our topic today. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Mark. All right. Well, we'll jump right in. You say that the thesis of the first book was, quote, straightforward. Uh, maybe just, just give us quickly, what did you argue 10 years ago? So 10 years ago, Adam and Eve, after the pill, made the contrarian case that contrary to what's said in dominant media, the sexual revolution was not actually a liberation. The sexual revolution, in fact, had exacted a steep toll. And in that first book, I examined the toll by looking at what we know about men, women, and children after the revolution and what rates of divorce and out-of-wedlock births, etc., seemed to have been uh, doing for human fulfillment and human happiness. Hmm. And in this book, which is an entirely new book, I widen the aperture so that we're no longer talking about individuals. What we're trying to see is how that same revolution transformed three large areas of the world in which we live. So there's one section on society and another one on politics and a final one on the churches where I ask, what has the sexual revolution done to Christianity? In, in the book, but before you move into that, just just to stay with the previous book, you note a certain emotional reaction to the book outside of the official channels and, and media and press that was communicated to you in conversations and emails. What did people say to you a little more privately? Well, Mark, that was the biggest surprise about the first book, because Although that book argued that church teaching was being vindicated, you didn't need to know anything about church teaching to follow the argument of the book, because the argument of the book was bolstered with nothing but secular empirical evidence, surveys and studies and articles and medical reports, etc. And so, although, of course, I believed in the thesis of the book, which is why I put it out there, I regarded this as a, an intellectual partly spiritual exercise. In other words, this was not a book of self-help. I wasn't trying to connect with people individually. And yet yeah. something about the argument 
really resonated with some readers on a personal level. They would get in touch by email to say, I know the thesis of this book is right. Look at what the sexual revolution did to my life. Look at what um, having partner after partner did to my life, et cetera. And these testimonies kept rolling in over the years uh, on the part of readers. And in one particularly arresting example, um, a man who had prostituted himself on the streets for years took to the internet to post his story and it too was sparked by one of the chapters in the book. So mm. that emotional response took me quite by surprise. And yet it also seemed to confirm that there had to be something right about that thesis, that once you put into plain English this idea that since the 1960s, things have not been getting better, uh, we are not liberated, things have been getting worse for people. <clears throat> once you put that idea out there plainly, it struck uh, quite a chord with readers. Yeah, and perhaps one reason why they came to you was that they didn't hear what they knew in their own lives was true anywhere else. I mean, you state that with, with the exception of the internet, nothing in recent times has so changed our lives than the sexual revolution, and, and yet there is fairly little commentary, analysis, examination of it. Well, why, why, the, why, the, why the silence? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, there's great resistance to the thesis of the book because we are living in a world in which fewer and fewer people ever knew life before the sexual revolution. I mean, I certainly didn't. Uh, that is to say, we take this thing for granted as the way we are supposed to live. And the problem with it all is that it puts a stark choice before us the choice is between short-term pleasure, which is easier to come by thanks to artificial contraception, versus long-term happiness, which requires the sacrifice of short-term pleasure. That yeah. is the choice, but the problem is we're living in a world where a lot of people don't even know that's the choice. A lot of people just assume that the pursuit of short-term pleasure is the way we are meant to live and that it's good for us. You know, you move in the book into a couple of examples of high school girls uh, who, who are pregnant, taken from the area in which you grew up. And maybe I'll say one of the reasons why readers like your writing so much, Mary, is because you're able to take the big ideas and you can really give them concrete uh, illustration. You can dramatize them with strong examples. And that's what we have here with these high schools from the area in which you grew up in upstate New York. Uh, you've got 1970, and then you've got the 1990s, after the revolution has really been complete. What are the contrasts that you draw there? Well, this is just based on what I saw with my own eyes. In 1970, when I was a child, a young teenage girl down the street got pregnant. Her boyfriend uh, was a soldier newly returned from the Vietnam War. And to the shock of everybody in this little hamlet, he decided not to marry her. Now, I remember vividly how shocking that was because although teenagers who were pregnant were not unknown, unmarried teenagers, teenagers who had babies without fathers being held to account, was something that was uh, as rare as a unicorn. It just didn't happen. And this was the first time it had happened 
in that town to my knowledge. She went away and had the baby and returned to high school. And I don't recall any social stigma being attached to the girl, but I do recall the stigma attached to her boyfriend for not marrying her. So this is a snapshot in a tiny town from 1970. 20 years later, I went back and I met up with a former teacher of mine, a high school teacher, and asked her how things were going. And she said, well, in this year's graduating class of seniors, a third of the girls were pregnant. Now let that sink in. This was a big central high school, a couple of hundred kids graduating every year. A third of the girls were pregnant. In 20 years, we had gone from one pregnant teenager to a third of them, And that's not even to count, of course, the number of abortions that may have been had by other girls uh, who were graduating that year. So in this snapshot of America, I think we see what the sexual revolution has been doing at the grassroots level. You pose a huge question. You say it's a huge question. Mary, how does this happen when birth control is suddenly you know easily available to everyone here. What wasn't the, wasn't the opposite supposed to happen? That's what most people thought, and it seemed like a reasonable guess too. Not only did people think that contraception would help marriage by liberating couples, they also thought it would reduce the need for abortion. And instead, as I discuss in both books in different ways. Instead, what happened was exactly the opposite. Contraception is embraced nearly across the board in the 1960s, and by the 1970s, we are seeing soaring rates of -of (laughs) out-of-wedlock births, abortion, fatherlessness, and divorce. Now, some very smart people who have nothing to do with the Catholic Church have put their minds to figuring this out, and in the books, I, I quote, economists trying to explain what happened. And the best that they can come up with is that because of contraception, the shotgun wedding became obsolete. In other words, exactly the situation I was describing with the girl in 1970 uh, became the norm. That is, men didn't feel as if they had to marry girls they had impregnated. And the other thing economists explain very well is that the the sexual revolution effectively flooded the marketplace with available partners or potentially available sexual partners. And that undercut the incentive to settle down with any given one of them. So these secular analyses, I think, are helpful. And they exist because a lot of people have looked at what you just were talking about why after contraception do we have more abortion, more broken homes? And I think these are good explanations. You know, the, it, it, it raises the, uh, another big paradox you raise uh, that is just as perplexing. Uh, you, you say the sexual revolution was about liberation so that women could leave fuller, richer lives. They could choose this and that, and all these avenues would be open to them. And yet... Uh, the availability of all, all, all the partners has actually curtailed one of their most fundamental desires, which is, you know, to have marriage, stable marriage. I mean, no one gets married thinking, well, I'm going to get divorced as if that's a good thing. Uh, but 
the the stable marriage and and having kids. What 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 is going on there? How 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 has greater choice actually interfered with one of the best desires that they have? Well, I think there are several answers there, Mark, but one of them has to be <clears throat> that after the availability of contraception or as of that availability and that destigmatization, a lot of girls were raised to think that they were interchangeable with boys. And this continues. They were raised to think that they were in the same category, physically, intellectually, the intellectual part is true. But the fact that their fertility is so much more limited than male fertility is not something that most girls understand, even very sophisticated girls. And so I think in part, women moving into the marketplace and staying in the marketplace throughout their most fertile years is one of the things that's responsible for the the difficulty of finding a partner and having a family. Women talk about this all the time. Secular women talk about this constantly. Why can't I be happy? Why can't I figure out how to balance these things? Well, one of the reasons the things is so hard to balance is that there is a a fuse. There's a fuse set by nature on female fertility. So that's one of the factors at play here. And more generally, again, it's that trade-off between short-term pleasure or, say, serial short-term pleasure and long-term happiness. And the sad fact is that, as you said at the opening, this is something most women want from all over the political spectrum. If you ask young women, what do you want out of life? Family and a husband will top the list. And the fact that we have made those things so much harder for them to find tells us that we have a social deficit here that needs remedying somehow. Part of the deficit is you say that the incentives for men to marry have diminished. Uh, That's your word, diminished. Uh, Mary, don't they want to settle down and, and have kids? Well, it's an interesting question. Again, that's in the interest of their long-term happiness. But they also are absorbing messages from the outside world that are lies. Uh, Most young men are looking at pornography these days. Pornography is nothing but one visual lie after another brought to light. This is how uh, they're learning about women. And this is something I've gotten into elsewhere in my work. We have to understand that social learning is ebbing away. Mark, you've been writing brilliantly about education and the decline of educational standards and the the educational deficits, say, the intellectual deficits that young people are facing. They're also facing basic social deficits, by which I mean more and more. They are growing up without robust family networks and with smaller families, with families without dad in the home, etc., That's to say they have fewer models to look to, to know how they're supposed to behave, to know what a woman is like, uh, what a man is like, what does that mean in adulthood? And this, I think, is one of the things that's really fraying the fabric of our society. It's not just that young people um, can't find romance, although that's also true. They are coming at this with a very serious handicap, which is 
they've learned less about the world, about other people, about social networks than mm-hmm. their ancestors did, than their pre-revolutionary ancestors did. Hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, I I hadn't hadn't prepared a question on that, but what you said, I I see so many young people, yeah, they don't know. In a way, it's not that they've rejected the past, they just don't know. They don't have a lot of the role models, they don't have... I, I mean, it's not, you can't even really say they're rebellious. They just kind of wander. They float, rootless, you know, without without any social foundation, social social model. I mean, I guess the the twenty four year old, bright, ambitious young woman. Well, maybe she's in law school or 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 getting uh, an advanced degree in in psychology or something. Is it that the you know the clock, the biological clock? It's it's not even remotely in her awareness. She, she, no one talks to her about that because career, success, achievement. What is going through her head about, about that? About, about a social marital future for her? Anything? Most likely not. Again, especially I think in the more elite precincts, the, our best universities, for example, there's pressure on girls from their parents to perform as boys, to take on those student loans, to embark on that brilliant career right after college. So many kids are taught, get your financial career life in order first, and then think about marriage. And the result is many of them reach their 30s and 40s without having gotten there yet. So we can't blame the kids all the time. They're absorbing uh, really toxic messages from different people in authority around them. Now, the good news is that I have seen so many times, and this was one good thing about being on the receiving end of people's stories after the first Adam and Eve book, so many times people would get in touch to say, I didn't know any of these truths, but I saw people who lived them. I saw the power of example, and it made me want to live the same way. And I've heard this reiterated over and over, Mark. I think it's a very important thing for everybody to realize that when you try to abide by uh, the Christian rule book and people see that, it makes a difference to them. It makes them want that. Or as one young woman said to me once, something I'll never forget, she said, I was raised perfectly secular with a single mother, left wing but I had a best friend in high school and she came from this vibrant Catholic family. There were all these people in it. And I used to go Mm. to her house and I finally realized I wanted what they had. Mm. And she had come forward after a speech to tell me her story and to say that she had actually become a convert because of it. Mm. So we have 60 years of social science showing that the sexual revolution has run amok 
But most people aren't convinced by social science. If social science convinced them, then we would have had a, a at least a small <laughs> awakening in this country long ago. Yeah. It's example that seems to do the trick. You refer to a process in chapter three that you call paganization or repaganization. What what is that? Well, I think what we're seeing across the West is that Christianity was never the norm. It was embraced. It put down deep roots in some places and shallower roots in others. But the norm is to want to live free of some of Christianity's strictures. And this has always been true. When Jesus talks about marriage, the disciples are the first ones to complain that these rules are hard. Why can't we get divorced? Why can't we be freer? And no doubt Christians have complained about this for 2,000 years. Since the sexual revolution, uh, with all of the temptations of contraception, a lot of people have not only decided these things are hard, but have decided that since these rules are hard, they must also be wrong. That's the logical fallacy. It's going from the statement, these rules are hard, to therefore they must be wrong. That's a that's an invalid inference, but it's it's very common. And when we see people say talk about spirituality today, I'm I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, and we see them drawn into um, various occult practices, new age stuff, etc. To me, all of that is coming from the same place, which is the longstanding human desire to live free of the hard parts of organized religion and especially Christianity. But the fact that it's easier to do that now, again, doesn't go to the truth value of these teachings. You know, if we we go back to the previous chapter... Again, we, we keep coming across contradictions that you that you highlight. And I actually think it's important to highlight the contradictions to sort of ease the cognitive dissonance that so many of us feel in, in the culture today. But one of them being, look, okay, this is about freedom, about liberation, about choices that one can make. And yet, how is it that this movement has produced uh, some rules like speech codes and punitive attitudes toward Christians. This is not, this is not do your own thing, you know, uh, 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 let it, let it be. How is it transformed into uh, really kind of a tighter, in some ways, a tighter, you know, social demand than the traditional ones we had before? The new intolerance, you call it. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So I think part of the answer, Mark, is that people can't live without rules. And so if you throw one blueprint into the recycling bin, say the blueprint of Holy Scripture and all of that, then something else is going to take its place. And this yeah. is partly what we're seeing in the rise of speech codes in identity politics that are fiercely defended and that amount to various tribal bands who have the loyalty to each other that people used to show toward their families and their churches. So you suppress all of that in one place and it will come out somewhere else. And that's part of what we're seeing in the redrawing of the world through speech codes and identity politics. 
But I think there might be something else going on there too, which is there is, I believe, a subliminal and sometimes not so subliminal resentment that Christianity even exists at all. Hmm. That there exists this rule book that people don't want to know about and certainly don't want to live by, and of which they're increasingly ignorant. And yet somewhere inside, the fact that this bunch of teachings has resonated in different times in every culture, in every language, speaks to Hmm. its universality. And that, I think, is something that neo-paganism fears. It fears Hmm. the universality of the Christian message. And this is part of the animus we see when street preachers are tossed into jail for reciting passages from Leviticus, which has happened in the United Kingdom. Um, And it's what we see when people go after cake makers. and Again and again. Again and again, relentlessly. Why is it that it can't be live and let live? And I think the reason is the threat the implied threat of a message that resonates all around the world for a reason. And this neo-paganism can't live with, which is why we are going to see nonstop religious liberty cases uh, until there is a massive social reckoning over the sexual revolution. Hmm. Chapter four has a provocative title, Men Are at War with God. And specifically, you mean that in their relationship to Sort of creation at at large. Would you clarify this war for us? Well, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the 20th century could be defined um, with the words men are men have forgotten God. I'm sorry, men have forgotten God. Four words. And I say, well, now it's men are at war with God. If we look at the most contentious issues in our societies, they almost always amount to questions over who controls creation. Euthanasia, for example, who's in charge of when we die? Is it us or is it someone else? Or starting at the beginning, who's in charge of whether pregnancies are carried to term? Is it us or is it someone else? And we, modern post-revolutionary creatures in general don't want to live with the idea that we are not in charge and we are not in control. But that desire to be in control doesn't answer the question of whether we should be. And I think given the results we're seeing, the answer is we shouldn't. This whole transgender um, cyclone is coming from exactly the same place. It's over exactly the same question which is true, that male and female, he created them, or that I can, with a surgeon's help, decide to be any gender I want, either sex, no gender at all, etc. Again, the question is who controls creation? We want to, but the results that we're seeing, including these macabre results uh, in the case of the transgender phenomenon, are showing us that we are actually not the people who should be calling these shots. You've got an interesting observation about another behavior, one might even say a bizarre behavior here, of of the young. When you looked at 
some of those uh, uh, marches and protests of 2020, and, and around that, that time, the tearing down of statues. And what you suggested at one point was that the youths who tore down a lot of those statues, what was really going on there was less a political meaning and more a familial meaning, uh, something about fatherhood. What, what was your insight there? Well, it was interesting, Mark, that statues in the summer of 2020 were being attacked indiscriminately across the country. And my observation was hmm. tearing down a Confederate statue is a political statement. Tearing down and defacing statues at random is a daddy problem. In Washington, D.C., to take one example, the statue of Mahatma Gandhi was defaced in one of those evenings of, of what's politely called unrest in summer of 2020. I think we saw this in other, I think this phenomenon had other manifestations. So, for example, that same summer, uh, it became um, unexceptional if you were dining outdoors as people were because of the pandemic, to have your dinner disturbed by protesters shining flashlights into people's homes and yelling at diners and sometimes uh, sweeping aside their plates and otherwise just being public menaces. But where was this coming from? Again, the resentment and the anger there was not about police brutality. Police brutality does not connect to disturbing families that are dining outdoors, to disturbing families in their apartments and houses at night. Hmm. There was a desire to get at social order on the part of people who obviously have known mostly social disorder. This was one way, I think, in which the problem of fatherlessness and dysfunctional homes now pours into the streets, and it continues to. It's just that we saw it most clearly in the summer of 2020. But yeah. you have to ask yourself, who in Portland is participating in this street theater that continues? Who's out there in the middle of the night um, throwing rocks at policemen? Who's out there is not somebody, most likely, uh, who's got a wife and children at home who's out there are disconnected, atomized, angry young men in almost all cases. And they are now, I argue in that chapter, taking this psychic trauma into the streets and attaching it to politics. There's much more in, in the book, uh, more uh, examinations. Of, of, of marriage and secularization. But for now, the book is Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Mary Eberstadt, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877- 332-2930.